This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I'm thrilled to spend time with an accomplished actress who originated the Broadway roles of Vanessa in In the Heights and Satine in Moulin Rouge. She portrayed Angelica Schuyler in the Chicago production of Hamilton and received a Tony Award for her role in West Side Story. Today, she tells us about the development process of taking an original music to Broadway, and she explains as a theater educator how important it is for her students to discover the intention in the material that leads to the passion and ultimately better performances. Stay tuned for a deep creative dive with Karen Olivo as we shine a light on the inequality in the arts and the power of fresh starts. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la, la 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 la. I am here, thank you for having me. Oh my God, I'm so happy to have you here. And, and to get to know you, we have some mutual friends who that was their first recommendation. Give really? Karen Olivo on this show. Oh, I love them. <laughs> well, they're great. And they're civic treasures of Madison, Wisconsin, where you are from. Yes, Ho-Chunk <laughs> land. Yes. Is that, what, is that what you call it there? Yeah, it's the indigenous unceded land of the Ho-Chunk. Oh, that's fantastic to know. Yeah. And, and relevant. These days, it's important for people to understand the ground they walk on. Absolutely. Let's start there in that you didn't grow up in that area. You moved there with your husband after your time in New York. Yes. The truth of it is, is that I met my current husband years ago while we were working on Broadway. We were both married to different people. And then I would say somewhere around eight or nine years ago, both of our marriages ended. I was living in L.A., he was living here in Madison because Madison is his hometown. And as I was bi-coastal, I would drop in and see him in Madison. And I fell in love with Madison and him at the same time. And so as our relationship progressed, I decided to stay. Well, it's a beautiful thing to me. And I consider myself a guy who skirted the L.A. life when I moved to Mandeville, Louisiana, which is even more Mayberry than Madison. <laughs> and people there didn't have any idea what I was doing. They didn't know what a comedian or a playwright or a producer did because they all had normal jobs or extremely Louisiana jobs like oyster shucker and barge captain and things. So for a guy to pay for his house with jokes made no sense to them. But what I'd like to ask you about, because I faced a, quite a bit of this, is what your friends in New York, your Broadway co-stars, their reaction, which is always very funny, about your move to Madison. Well, some of them still think that I live in Michigan because Madison is not something that they even think about. <laughs> they know it starts with an M. 
And so they're like, hey, how is Michigan? And I'm like, Madison, I've been here for like eight years. It just shows you people recognize Wisconsin, but Madison as being the capital is not something that they don't correlate the two. But I think a lot of people were like, why? They'd never heard of this place before. I mean, if you've been to Madison, you kind of know why. It's a pretty fantastic place. Well, I think creative people actually need to know that it's okay to live anywhere because the industry always feels like you have to be here to be part of the party. They treat you like you're going into Betty Ford if you move outside of Los Angeles or New York. Absolutely. But that's how they keep you sort of like chomping at the bit, right? That's how they keep you running the streets ragged is if you are in the grind at all times. Yeah, then you're part of the scene. And if not, then what are you doing? But the truth is, I mean, and we've seen this in the last year, our, the way that we do business has changed so vastly. I mean, at this point, I'm working more than I've ever worked my entire life because I can be virtual. That is the one sort of positive that I've, I've really held on to and I remind myself to be really grateful for is that now I can actually do a lot of the work that I want to do. I can be in three different places in one day and that just couldn't happen before. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. And and that whole idea of a fear of missing out, the converse thing is the party is where you are. Meaning I always thought, oh, okay, well, let's just enjoy the moment. This is what we're working on now. This is the project we're developing now. So I can't do two things at once. But obviously in this situation, we don't have to fly to a meeting. We don't have to do, you know, all of that is a tremendous luxury from running around town. And and I think your passion for what you do drives your purpose And Yo-Yo Ma said something about passion is the one great force that unleashes creativity. Because if you're passionate about something, you're more willing to take risks. And I don't think of a move like that as being risky. You're moving towards a life balance. All of the other parts of your life outside of your creativity are now fueling your creativity. Well, I think that the, the move to Madison, Wisconsin did even more to my artistry than anything else. Because... You know, one of the things is when you're in New York or when you're bi-coastal and you're working on both coasts, you're submerged in the form, in the mediums, in the people. And the moment that I need material so that I can bring it to life, I need to actually live a life that's vast and, and varied. And when you're just stuck in a pool of other actors doing the same thing, going to the same places to eat. There's no color in your life. You don't see a different kind of way of living. And so moving to Madison afforded me this completely different perspective and also gave me time to recharge my battery so that when I enter into spaces to make art, I have energy. I'm inspired rather than being just on empty and trying to like churn out a product. It was the best thing that has really ever happened to my work. Well, I hope people hear it because I do think they need to know that it is about taking care of yourself in order to be able to express yourself in a way that's unique to the world. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah. And you're an educator and teaching other folks. And so you're a role model, but you're also a person that lives what you do, meaning it's not a teacher that never, you're not a ski jump teacher that never jumped. Right. Or a, a golf coach that never swung a club. The evidence of what you what you do is so, I mean, it's so motivating to hear you sing. So how do your students react to you when they first come to you? They're aware of you or they... I, I would say for the most part, they, they know what I do. I've been in the business for like 25 plus years. 
Well, no, everybody, they know, of course they know before their first lesson, but are they intimidated or are they? Always, always. There's something that they understand almost immediately, which is I'm only there as a scene partner. I try to destabilize the hierarchy in a classroom at all times because I don't feel like people learn properly. And I think that people can't be true and honest in spaces in which they feel like they are lacking power and agency. And so every single time, there's always like a buffer about 15 minutes where the student is trying to say the right thing and you can tell that they're not breathing, you know, and their eyes are darting around and their voice is shaking (laughs) and they're swallowing a lot. And after a while, I just sort of like let them sort of go through their thing. And then I'm like, cool. Do you want to just like hang out? And so then we're human beings with one another for a little bit. And then they just realize that I'm just someone who's going to stand next to them during the lesson and give them institutional knowledge and years of experience to help guide whatever it is that they're bringing, as opposed to me sort of telling them this is what it's supposed to be like. I think that's amazing. So tell me what kind of subject areas you cover scene study. Are you working with them musically as well or just in acting or? Over the years, I did a lot of like master classes and I hate the word master class, but you're working professional in the industry and then people ask you to come and talk about what you do and then try to coach students to do what you do. And one of the things that I always try to do is figure out what it is that I don't know about what they're trying to bring. So that takes a lot of personalization. So a lot of song interpretation Most of the times students would bring uh, a piece of music and then they would ask me to coach it. So coach them on, you know, their vocals and then their acting. And most of the times it would just end up being me talking to them about why they're passionate about what it is that they brought. And once we can unlock that, all the technical things start to sort of fall into place. And most of my career in teaching started there, but I'm actually a little bit more of transitioning a little bit into with all of the activism, the organizing, I I really do feel like I'm, I'm a little bit more of like an artistic facilitator. So I really do feel like every single artist can be a multi hyphenate. And we're sort of fed this myth that you must prioritize one of your skills and you must only look at that. And what we see now, especially during the way that our mediums have changed to being virtual, is that everyone has to be their own editor and writer and content creator. And so this idea of like minimizing someone's capacity based on like what I believe it should be is really sort of bizarre to me. So every single time I see see a student, I ask them about all the things in their life, all the things that they love, not just the singing and the dancing. Because every single last one of those components feeds into a much broader picture about who they can become once they've decided that they want to make money with their art. I'm also someone who just leaves all the doors and the windows open for myself because I feel like, you know, if I move like water within my my artistry, I can sort of go anywhere and I surprise myself. I try to instill that in my students and that usually involves empowerment And Mm -hmm. it usually, it's a lot of side coaching and a lot of mentoring. And, you know, I always will work on material whenever they want. But I feel like there are other people that are better suited to do that. And I know for a fact, I'm really good at like getting to the core of why the student does what they do. Yeah, but why is such an important thing? It's everything. How is technique and people can do things perfectly and have no charm or no heart or no ability to communicate. You know, there is something 
that when somebody watches you in a lead role in a musical and you win a Tony, it's because you're a lightning rod. You've got something coming through you that is conduit. T- I call them the conduits. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I'm saying. I'm saying you just have to let that electricity like come out of you and, and attack that audience in a way that basically have to free up to let it happen. Everything that you do that constricts you impacts your voice, the tone, mm-hmm. the message. You're not listening to the other actor because you're not fluid. So true. You're so true. And it is, it, it is interesting in musical theater, particularly that it breaks down into three parts, which is the acting, the singing and the dancing. And you always feel like you're being measured in casting. Yeah. I mean, I think that, there, that there's a structure to it that musical theater has been taught in our industry that is actually it's really archaic because what we're talking about is a whole human being. We're talking about someone who understands what life is like outside and is able to move through song and written text and movement by displaying the things that they live in their everyday life. And that takes someone who is hyper aware and who also understands their facility, their instrument. And when you when you compartmentalize the music and the acting and the dancing, it's almost like you're telling your body that you can only do one thing at a time. And that's not the truth. To do the thing, to do the musical theater thing, you must weave in and out of all of the disciplines. I, I, you know, I really, I have a problem with people saying the words like triple threat and things like that, because it, it's just not how it's done. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't just have dancing without the singing. There's always acting taking place. It, it seems like an, an oversight. Yeah, it's the sum of the parts does not make the whole because you know what? What the thread in that quilt is, is self-confidence, is ability to project character, to own the real feelings of what that character's doing. That'll always sell something over the material. Oh, yeah. If if somebody has an, an understanding of loss and is singing about it, you can hear it. The words don't do it. The music supports the tone and the internal message. Yeah. I don't I don't know how actors do that or singers do that. It's a mystery to me. I think it's just truth. That's the other thing. The thing that we're talking about is stuff that everyone experiences. Can you tell the truth while 2,500 people are watching you? And that's really what our discipline is. You learn a couple of skills here and there, and then you get into the space and they shine lights on you. And you're like, I'm just going to bear my soul. Right. Right. That's the interesting thing. Not only can you tell the truth, can you own the truth? Wield it. It's so vulnerable. And in your business, what people don't really understand, and this is why winning a Tony Award to me is the greatest of the acting compliments from your peers and from your industry, is that you're doing eight shows a week and you're bearing your soul in live performance on a runaway stagecoach until the show ends that night and you have to revisit it tomorrow. And whatever the depth of that is, you don't get the assistance of the editor in a movie. You don't get the assistance of it being locked into perfection and then you walk away and it runs on Netflix for the rest of your life. You have to revisit it. It's a mind blower to me. So, I mean, first of all, congratulations on that Tony Award. Your acceptance speech for that Tony where you dedicated it to anyone that had a dream and stuck with it. It's a powerful message to your students and to any creative. You're wanting to sort of pay it forward for everyone. I thought it was really beautiful. And of course, you it brought you to tears. So tell me what that moment was like when you heard your name. It's hard to go back to that moment because I don't feel like I was really in my body. I think that there was so much about my industry that I had been conditioned to sort of suppress. What you don't see, I guess, when you watch that, people are like, oh, my gosh, what you're saying 
is so beautiful. And, you know, you're dedicating this back to people, younger people and, and you're emotional, but you know, there's so much about our industry. I mean, you've already sort of talked about how hard it is to do the actual act, (laughs) you know, the run up to the Tony awards is lots of rehearsals, Mm -hmm. lots of being under the microscope because before the Tony awards happen, there are slew a slew of voters coming in at all different times. So like every single performance has to be the best possible one. I used to say like Tony award season is like an opening night every night Ugh. because you know, someone's out there and they're judging you specifically at that point. I was so bleary eyed <laughs> that getting to the award ceremony and, you know, having my shoes on and still having my earrings in was like, Oh, I'm winning already in the emotion. There's a lot of fatigue. And there's a lot of, oh my God, this is over. Like the race. It's that moment that you see in marathons when they cross the finish line and they're like, yes. And then all of a sudden you see like the blood drain from their face and their knees give out and they fall to the ground. That's kind of what that sort of thing is because you're constantly pushing yourself past the point of exhaustion and mental exhaustion to get to this thing. And once it's happened, you're like, oh, I get to rest. Your body shuts down to protect you. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The way that I feel about awards in the arts is so different now based on what I've learned and what I've been doing in activism, because, you know, the Tony Award that they gave me said best and best is not something that can be really quantified, not to mention I mean, I know exactly who was in that category with me. We all did such vastly different work, not to mention the other artists during that year that did phenomenal work that didn't get their shot on a Broadway stage to even be put in the running. So when we look at best, I'm almost like, that's not true. That's not true because not everybody got to play. I didn't play against the best teammates. It wasn't me and them. It was just me and the few that were picked for that season. I I really do have a very broader view of what that situation is because now I know more about how our industry works and how the business side of it works. I'm conflicted as well because I do understand that it is primarily a marketing tool. Let's draw attention. We'll sell tickets. We need exposure. We need to, you know, if we can get a number in the show, it means this. If we can get a win, it means this. And there is a lot of money in Broadway to put something on and to see a return is a great risk for a lot of people. And so they're trying to protect that risk at all costs, including campaigning for those things. But there is something nice to be recognized for all of those people that saw you and all of those people that judged you and made that those performances difficult. You were able to stay in the ring up against it. I applaud you and your cast. They're under the same scrutiny when they come to see you. You're nominated, but they all want to keep the show at that peak level it's yeah, it's a team effort for sure. Yeah, it's so silly. That's another reason that I don't really understand the award system as it exists currently, because it should be an ensemble award. If one person did it, that means that there's about 30 other people who helped them get there, even more 50 or so, because when we talk about like the crew and the orchestra, like no one can do this art form by themselves. It is such a collective and a collective that is striving towards the same common goal of excellence. And so uh, hopefully, American Theater Wing, if you're listening, maybe you'll like you'll change categories around and maybe we'll start to like really talk about who does the work and how we should award them or how we should identify their contributions. <laughs> 
That's fine. Listen, you have a voice here. So I know that there are many things about the industry that are frustrating to the talent. We're, we're in a world where speaking out has value. And especially if people aren't afraid, there seems to be a great deal of fear in, will I be in another show? Will people put me down? Will something happen if I believe in something? And I really Intimidation. just- yeah. Yeah, having an authentic voice uh, is, it's a liberation, I think, if you're, if you are able to do it without fear. John Lewis has the quote, when you lose your sense of fear, you're free. You look at like civil rights movement and the people who really changed the way that our nation saw humanity and it, it takes a level of abandonment. What else are we going to do? What do we have to lose? When I am really outspoken about specific things, I think about my students obviously, because they watch me mm-hmm. and I model for them. But I also think about when I was a kid, my mom, we go out to a restaurant and, you know, as a child, you're afraid to ask where the restroom is or order your own food or something. And my mom used to look at me and she'd be like, what, what are you afraid of? Can you fit in their mouth? And it's silly, but also it's like, yeah, what are you afraid of? What is it that keeps you from speaking your mind in spaces In some instances, when we're talking about things like this, when we're talking about artist rights or empowerment, what am I afraid of? They're not going to hire me. I probably didn't want to be in that room anyway. Those are people that don't take human rights seriously or they don't think enough about it, particularly as you get some strength in having performances and peers and folks that know that you're speaking from the, the right place. You do feel support and you feel like, oh, we can change things or move things, even though it seems to go very slowly. Your background, if I'm right, your father was Puerto Rican and Native American. Just Puerto Rican. And your, oh, just Puerto yeah. Rican. And your mom, Dominican and, and some Chinese descent. So you have a whole a series of places that you're coming from. And I'm sure people are always trying to identify or place you, which is also not fair. To me, talent is where this lands and and why Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is a peer of yours and what he did with Hamilton and in the Heights, it's extraordinary leadership to be able to tell stories in a multicultural way and have everybody come to the party. Agreed. I think this industry, though, I don't know how far down the rabbit hole you actually want to go. Well, listen, whatever your interest is. I mean, I feel like there's something about our industry at its core that is is highly racist, truthfully. Um, It it is about putting people into boxes. It is about uh, a prescribed way of seeing the world. The people who had the funds to make the theater wanted to see their lives on stage. When we talk about the people who have the funds, that usually leaves out people who look like me or people who have darker skin. And so for Mm -hmm. the longest period of time, what you're talking about in terms of people trying to identify what I am and put me someplace are people who don't have a vision about what it means to be a human being rather than a color of skin. And usually it has to do with power and it has to do with privilege and it has to do with who has the funds to to put something together. And so, yeah, that's something that I think that our industry is going to is struggling with now. And I think that they're really getting better with trying to understand that just because I have the money doesn't mean I know what the community wants. There's a, a really wide variety of people who deserve to be a part of art and there's not access It's a privilege in our world. I mean, the fact that you and I are talking on the internet right now, that's a privilege that people in the United States still don't have. 
So it's just like when we talk about like being able to pay an absorbent amount of money to sit in a theater and be entertained, this is something that is for the rich. Yes. And so there are people and experiences that you will never see on a stage because those people, it's not even in their, in the realm of possibility for them to get off work early, to put money down for a ticket, to sit in a theater and be entertained. So I think that we're really trying to open that up. I think that that's a conversation that we have to keep having and we have to keep talking about accessibility. And it's not just accessibility in terms of like who has the money, but also accessibility and representation. And that doesn't mean just like, you know, racial representation. It means gender representation. It means different ages. It means so many different things. People from different socioeconomic backgrounds. I mean, these are the things like if theater's supposed to be the mirror for humanity, this is where it starts. Like we have to start doing things in a way that shows the world what we want it to be and what it has been. That all has to do with representation. Yeah. And I think that people are triggered by words. They hear the word privilege and they think rich, but you just sort of described it. It's so many other things. It's being able-bodied. It's being middle-class. It's being anything. What it really reflects is not being underprivileged, right? Underprivileged, things being taken away, things being held against you, historic things that hold you back. I speak of myself at the moment saying, every direction I look, I go, okay, so I'm male and I'm white and I'm a certain age. And that affords me to not think about getting into college a certain way or other things that families don't get. And I and I really take umbrage to the arts, having the funding for arts falling away from schools and communities, because to me, that literature, that language of the arts is how we understand who we are. Yes. It's that you talked about it as a mirror. It's that reflection yeah. that when, when that goes away and I, you know, it's fine that high schools put money into the football team and all of that, but that's a different kind of experience. And it's a different kind of a binary competition where you root for your team and they win or they lose and you wear the jersey with their thing and you feel like you're in it. That's so much different yeah. than being in a choir or a symphony or an orchestra or a play or learning to write a piece of poetry. That expression is why we've sort of dumbed down our communication and everything is being fed to you. And social media, all of that is something we have to live with. We're consuming things so quickly that we're really not getting the depth of it. It's important that you state that arts in, in school is, is really fundamental, I think, because that's, a, like, that's the beginning of socialization, right? This is the first time that students or young people come out of their homes and start interacting with people who are possibly from different places. And the arts teach us empathy in a completely different way. It teaches us about humanity. And when we really put all of our efforts into something like you know, football, let's say, which it's a competition and someone has to win and someone has to lose. It's a collective working to beat someone else. Yes, they're working together, but still someone has to lose. When you go to the theater, there's a collective creating art out of nothing. And hopefully every single person in this space arrives with something beautiful and powerful that they didn't know was possible before they stepped in. Everyone wins at the theater. And so those distinctions are so important to the way that we live our lives and what we're missing and what children are missing out on. And the thing that is also a gift is they win at the experience, but they also take home something. There's a change within them. Sometimes they're able to say, I have to call my mother after the show, or I have to do something, right? So there's a call to action yes. that is not always yes. specific. 
in, in some of these shows, Hamilton is one of them, which I know that you enjoyed Chicago production as Angelica, but when people hear it, they don't know what the call to action is. It's different for everybody. For me, it this, there was so much urgency and it was so dynamic in every moment. It was an anthem of find something you can amplify that you believe in. And very much this podcast is about the fact that I think creativity is always worth having dialogue about. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. And I'm glad that you you state how it's so different that you can take away. I think good theater makes every single person in the theater think about something different. You know, if we're all coming away with the same theme, I think it might be too on the nose. I love that people walk away from the play and they're like, what just happened? And it's a conversation that goes on through dessert. And then the next morning they wake up and they're like, wait, I don't understand. Right. Why would someone do that? That's incredible. Something that sticks with you like that, that really sort of works on your psyche and stays with you and shows you yourself and informs you in the world for the next however long. That's why people go to the theater and then they run out to their the people that they work with and they're like, you got to see the show. You don't hear very often. Oh, my God, you have to go see this game. <laughs> no, right. You don't see that. It's not the same. Right. You know exactly how it's going to end. Someone's going to win and somebody's going to lose. And possibly someone's going to make an incredible play. That's not a given. I often had this trick that had to do with sports. A friend of mine both did this when we were in L.A. People would invite us over to watch a game or something. And I didn't know anything about it. And I don't mind watching the highlights of somebody making a great play. But I would walk into a room of guys who knew all the statistics. And the trick is, if you ever need it, is you say, how's Johnson doing? And then they take it from there. They go, oh, he got traded. Oh, he whatever. You should have seen, you know, you pick a common name and then you say it. And then they take the dialogue and then you go in and get chicken wings and celery sticks. And they think you're part of the group. That's so generous of you. Really? Just even that much? Yeah, no, truthfully, it is because you you don't have any, you don't really care, but you want them to think that you care. And that just shows a generosity of spirit on your part, because you could easily just go in there and walk right past them and go get the chicken wings. I heard you say in an interview, there's a big importance of questioning. And so I'm curious about that, how important questioning is. There's so much that we're indoctrinated with, like the gender binary is, is something that we're you take for granted that because someone is considered a specific gender, that there are all of these other attributes that go along with that. If I've learned anything in this last year and change is that if I'm not questioning the things that feel like my norm, then I'm not really experiencing what's really going on. There's a lack of awareness and there's like a shortcut in terms to doing a lot of things. It's called heuristics. But I remember when I was like taking psychology, there's all these different things where we categorize things in a split second. When you do that, you're not looking at what's happening in front of you. You're not taking into account this specific person and the nuance and what this situation and how this situation is different. So we lead by assumption. And so there's so much to my world that I feel like in the past, I have just left to, oh, I know kind of what that is. Therefore, I'm going to act accordingly, or I'm going to do this because this is how it's done. In the amount of books that I've read in this last year, what I see is that a lot of those systems and a lot of those, those policies and things that I just, this is my world. This is how it's done. We're not built for even people like myself. And so my job in every space is to question. And when I say question, it's not to question in a negative, but to be like, usually my question is, is this what I want? Does this hurt anyone? 
Does this help anyone? And if I can answer those things appropriately, then I move forward. And if not, I stop because I will most likely be using information that was handed to me that has not been vetted by my own value system. My husband's always like, you talk really slow or like it takes you long to make decisions. And it's because I want to be sure. I want to be really sure about my actions. I want to make sure that my actions are a reflection of the way that I want to live my life. And usually that ends up being that I have to just take my time. I think that's a powerful recipe for personal success. I'll take it. <laughs> I No, I hope that people hear that. You've created for yourself a way of checking your values and being sure that you don't conflict with them over the choice for money or for opportunity or for something that might make you afterwards have a regret. I feel like there's a lot that we regret as a people. I haven't run into anyone that hasn't thought about what's happened in this last year and questioned some of the ways that they lived their lives in 2019. I don't want that feeling again. And I like to learn from my mistakes. Anybody who didn't pay attention, I feel sorry for them because if they've masked it and just said everything's fine and my stock is fine and this is fine, they're sort of living in a different kind of bubble. It's crazy. Not just this couple of years, but the last several years, we yeah. just see the dynamic of quick consumption of news. Everybody pick a side, yeah. pick any problem. Yeah. And we don't need to get into the details of this, but you can politicize a mask or a vaccination or a vote or a anything. And you can say, oh, you're a cantaloupe thumper. Well, you know, you're part of that group. It's just really strange to me that everything seems to be pick a side. Yeah. Let me take us all the way back to your originating the role of Vanessa in, in the Heights. And the reason okay. that I'm curious about it is that it's about the development process. In creativity, and part of what my world was, was writing plays and rehearsing them and getting on stage with an original group of people where we weren't looking at the template of the shows we saw before. Meaning, probably early in your life, Sound of Music comes on, this sort of thing comes on, and you try to sing it like the person in the movie. But now you've entered with a group of people because you started at the very beginning of In the Heights as a part of the team, right? Yeah. I mean, I started in there before when they were doing developmental work, like the first lab. Right. So the audience doesn't really know what this process is. So you worked with an extraordinary Algonquin roundtable of singers and actors and creators on that. But a part of your own life is infused in that role that is living on now in a feature film. Tell me just a little bit about that journey. I mean, I think that it's important to state that when a musical is being conceived, it's a skeleton. There's a framework. Um, there's plot points just in, in the same way that any screenplay would come to be. And then with musicals or with plays, when you start, you do readings to get the language right and to get the structure of what the story is supposed to be. And then you start to look for the people to inhabit the character. I came along during a period of time in which Vanessa was not completely formed. She was a character, but she was a very small character. And it, it really is the director and the creator's job to sort of put people in the room that can ignite something inside the character. 
And so a lot of the attributes that I had at the time ended up being the framework for Vanessa. Even when I saw the movie, it's like flipping through a photo album of like me at that age, because there is so much of my moxie. I was such a knucklehead at that time. And I was really combative for no reason sometimes because I didn't understand my own emotions, uh, wide eyed and not able to be in the moment, but wanting to fast forward to the future. And you see all of that within Vanessa. You go through this process, the lab process in which, you know, the creator and the writer, they're trying on different songs. They're trying on different lines, trying to see how you fit inside the piece. And then once you, you've amassed the right characters and the right cast for this story, then you start running it to see like how it wants to breathe. And then that's when you get into like, we did off Broadway and we had different songs and we had some plot shifts here and there. And then as the audience sits in the seat, the audience starts to tell you information about the story as you've envisioned it. And they start to give you sort of the feedback of like, it's not quite like they're listening. It's quite like they're flipping through their program. And then you start to understand, okay, this is where we're losing them in the story. So then you go back and you start to work on it again and you start to snip things. And then, you know, you get to a point in which you move. I mean, we moved to Broadway and we tried to create every single time in every iteration of In the Heights, we tried to create something that we could be proud of and something that was a true depiction of what our, our joy in our culture was. And we were lucky in the, in the way that we had Lynn at the helm who was speaking his own language. He was talking about his family and we were all speaking from a place of knowledge and ancestral knowledge, not something that we had to like research the relationships that we were trying to show for the audience, it was my relationship with my sister or with my aunt or with my uncle. And so there's so much truth to it. And I think that that's why for a lot of people in the Heights, regardless of where you came from or how you grew up, it just struck everyone as being their story because they saw truth. They saw relationships that they identified and they saw people who loved each other and people building community. That's pretty much the process. It, it goes through a lot of technical phases, but truly at the end, it becomes its own living thing and you have to just step out of the way. And was that a three, five, seven year period or what, what length of time? Feels like it was 20 years. <laughs> no, no. I want to say it was probably a process around three years, yeah. four years maybe. Yeah, and it's interesting how long until the movie came out. And of course, the success of Hamilton, all of that drew attention to so much of Lynn's work. I really thought from a pandemic standpoint was how powerful his Hamilton coming out at 4th of July on Disney Plus was on one end of the pandemic pick me up for people, which meant that mm -hmm. the accessibility to families that could watch that show over and over if they could afford the Disney Plus subscription. After the vaccination coming out, one of the very first movies I saw in the theater was In the Heights, and it was so hopeful and so uplifting. It was such a gift on the other side of it that in some ways he has a bookend of his art form guiding people through some of this, you know, angst and tragedy. Absolutely. Well, I listened to some of your original music on Spotify. There was some numbers that, did you write those as well as perform them? So on my album, I wrote one song on my album and everything else is by another composer. The, the piece that I wrote was How It Feels. I think it might be the second track or the third track or something like that. Yeah, that was the first time that, I mean, it was actually just poetry that I kind of hummed a melody to and then sent it to a very skilled uh, musician friend of mine, Bill Sherman, and he fleshed out the chords. And then it went into another sort of hibernation stage 
where another artist put their hands in it and then it became what it is. <laughs> and how does it feel when you birth something like that and bring it to, to life on an album? Vulnerable. It's really sort of, it is more vulnerable than I think I've ever been, even as Satine on stage in like my underwear. Because what I was talking about in that song was the way that heartbreak feels to me specifically. And that is something that even with your best friend, you'll feel a little strange even talking about the highs and lows. And I don't know where I had the audacity to decide to make it a song and then put it on an album, but I did. So sometimes when I, even when I hear it, my mom for the longest time, she had the CD in her car and she would listen to it all the time. So if she would come to pick me up or something like that, I would hear myself singing from the windows and I'd be like, oh my God, what is happening? Mom, <laughs> please turn that off. I'm talking about my heart being broken. <laughs> right, right. You don't need to be triggered every time you get in your mom's car. Oh my God. <laughs> It, somehow a thing like that tricks you into bringing it into the world because you wrote it as poetry, which meant you put the words on the paper and maybe that kind of expression helped you relieve yourself of the pain. But then it was the poem that got passed to somebody and then they put the music to it. So in a way, it, it was very crafty in getting you to hear it in a slightly different way. And then when you talk about another artist getting a hands on it, it's like, oh, now you're detached. It's a teenager growing its own life. But then it comes back and it says to you, take me to the prom, sing this for everybody. Yeah. And then you're, you're suddenly you're Carrie at the prom, right? You know, it's just like, oh no, all of my feelings are coming, dumping down on me. It is interesting too, because when you do create something, you are the touchstone of the Genesis. You know, there are lots of poems that I had written in the past that didn't evoke music as well. And so those ideas or those moments don't get to be fleshed out. But then, you know, I take the music and I take the poetry and I hand it to someone. And if it doesn't click with them as well, then it doesn't see the next stage. It doesn't go through its next evolution. And so there's something when something actually does make it to be produced for me, in that way, it means that enough people put their hands in it, but saw something that was truthful, that sort of pushed it up to the front and to the top. It, there's so much anguish involved in that. Well, again, it all comes back to truth. Can't get away from the truth. No. <laughs> Early on, I know that you, did you get your debut on Broadway in joining the cast of Rent? What year was that? We don't have to say the year. We don't have to say the year. But you entered as a as a swing performer, which I don't know if the yes. audience knows what that is, but tell them what all is responsible when you're a swing. Yes. And, and I think an understudy as well, right? Yes. Yes, I was both. So an understudy is someone who will stand in for a specific character and they learn that character. And then if something happens to that one person who plays that character, then they step in for that character. That's an understudy. A swing is someone who learns all of the parts. <laughs> So they're basically the person who just sits in the back and has everyone's track in their head. And at a moment's notice, they step into a spot. And so my first Broadway gig was me being a swing at Rent and having to know five different roles. And there are only, I believe, six in the, the play of females. And actually, I mean, I could have gone on for Paul if I needed to. But a swing's job is you have to save the day. It's your job to save the day. You never know who you're going to be. Many a times I would just be sitting in the dressing room and the show would already be up and running. And I would hear my name over the loudspeaker and they'd say, Karen, you're on for Mark's mom. Get to the deck. And I would run and there would be someone with my costume sitting on the deck and I would strip, 
put on my costume and there would be sound and they would slap a mic on my head and I would run out onto stage. And so there's like this, you know, the loudspeakers play the show at all times. So as a swing, you're always in the show in some capacity. You might be sitting downstairs eating a bagel, but your brain is sort of like, where are they in the show? In case they call your name. And that would be a case like that emergency. Would that be like a character twisted their ankle or something happened and you're replacing them midstream? Absolutely. Yes. Wow. I think one time someone got, they had a stomach bug. Another time, I think there might've been a collision between people and the other person couldn't go on. In mid show is something that swings. You see all the time. It's just, it's the ultimate shot from the cannon. You have to know the show in a completely different capacity. Even someone who's in the show at all, every single night doesn't know the show the way that you know it. You have to know their character. You have to know the their dialogue. You have to know their song and you have to know their blocking and the dance step. Yes. You have to know yourself in relation to every other person on that stage in multiple places. I mean, there'd be times swinging for so many different roles that we would all, there's lots of ensemble numbers in which we would all walk out on stage together. The opening of act two, when everyone walks and they do the seasons of love at the very, the footlights, there'd be so many times that I would walk out and I would be walking and then I'd be like, "Uh Oh, I don't know who I am. And I would have to look at my costume and be like, okay, I'm Alexi Darling. And then I would go and I would stand where Alexi Darling is because all of the music is everyone sings that song. (laughs) I have heard about other actors moving a swing into their spot. Absolutely. You know, they're like, Ooh, you're over here today. Absolutely. It's something else. I'm so glad that I did it though, because it showed me not only my capacity, but then it also showed me how to respect the work and other actors because the way that I was treated in those situations in which I was standing in for someone else and someone would do what you're talking about, which is hold me and be like, you're not always here. That kind of compassion was something that I understood in a completely different capacity so that when I started to be the person who was always in the spotlight, if someone else showed up and they, were, they had that fear in their eyes of like, who am I? Where am I supposed to go? I could always immediately drop what I was doing and be, be like, this is show them compassion and give them kind eyes and and show them the way because I was I was one of those people. I mean, I always say to any young artist, if you can swing or understudy, do it. It must be when you talk to other swings that have had that in their background. It must be like a Navy SEAL reunion. You all know what it's like to be underwater with one straw waiting for the sun to come up. That is crazy. I mean, I know that a few times in my earlier career where an actor goes up on a line or some sort of thing, I did a few good men and I was playing a JAG lawyer and I was interviewing some doctor on the stand and this older guy got nervous and I learned the case. And what was interesting about learning the case was when this older guy forgot his lines, which were very specific medical case about lactic acidosis, that I asked the question and I looked at him and I could just tell in his eyes, he's got nothing nothing to say. And I thought, this is a critical piece of information. And so I just said to him, doctor, didn't you say that? And then I just said his line, you know, I said, didn't you tell your lawyer that, you know, whatever I said. And then- I repeated it all, and he had this great sense of, it was like a, a thank you bulging out of his eyes. He was sitting on the stand, but it was a different kind of stand, and the audience was the jury, and he was on trial. I mean, it was it was such a great moment. And then backstage, I mean, he gave me the biggest hug that a person's ever given anyone, and he was like, I don't know what happened. I just had no idea what was. And that happens to all of us somewhere 
in our theatrical career. What you're describing, you're describing is what we call the white room, which is something that happens very often for actors, which is you walk in, you're in the middle of a scene and all of a sudden it's as if your vision goes completely away and you're in a white room with no doors and no windows and you can't find your way out. And a second feels like an hour. It's like you're pushing at everything, trying to find your way out. And there's no, there's no information. There's no guide. And so you need help. You need someone to, to fish you out of the white room. <laughs> well, I'm glad people have learned about the white room. Let me ask you about something very small and, and, but might be helpful to mm -hmm. a singer, to a performer. When you're doing eight shows a week, what, how do you take care of your voice and your energy? This is something that people lose their voice or they... Mm -hmm. Get fatigued. Yeah. Do you have a go-to lozenges and teas and things or what do you do? I'm someone who really does believe in sleep and water. I feel like you can be losing your voice. And if you lay down and you sleep for like a good 20 minutes, it's a restorative thing for your voice. I am definitely someone I'm not, I don't laugh really loud. I don't go out at night. I kind of live like a monk when I'm doing a show just because I like to have every single tool in the box completely sharpened. And if I go out and I'm out too late and I come in and I'm rusty, it doesn't make me feel good. So I keep my head down, stay quiet. I drink more water. I go to sleep. Um, the only thing that I do that I think is probably bad is that I eat right before bed, which is not great for acid reflux, but you know, <laughs> That's it. All right. And I do remember a lyric from your song in In the Heights where she sang, if I win the lottery, you'll never see me again. Yep. Is that true? If I win the lottery, I think there's a lot of people are going to have abundance in their lives. Yeah. And they're going to hear from you plenty, I think. Yeah. I'll be giving out. I'll be throwing money from the from the roofs. Well, I, I think you're an archangel to your students. You're more than an educator or a teacher. You're an awakener. You're you're opening eyes for people. And okay. I really appreciate you doing that for us today and sharing some of your insights. That is so kind of you, Pat. Thank you for having me. It's good. It's been lovely. You're the best. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations that offer a spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under Wizbang producer Amanda Rosenberg with editing by soundsmith Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Please feel free to reach out with your input or to share a review through social media on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. That's right. It's dot fun because dot com is not fun. Cheers. Oh.